Thank you for listening to the MicroBinFeed podcast. Here we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There's so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody really writes it down. There's no manual, and it is assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan of Enterobase, Grape Tree, and Break Fame, and Dr. Andrew Page of such works as Plasmatron 5000, Rory, and Gubbins. I am Dr. Lee Katz, and you might know me from my tree-making pipeline mastery or my SNP pipeline live set. Both Nabil and Andrew work at the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where we work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct professor at the University of Georgia in the US. Today, we're gonna be talking about surveillance platforms, reference lab characterization, bacterial profiling methods, and just kind of overall the mechanics of how we talk to each other. So in the past, people have used a number of different approaches to to sort of define different types of, of microbes in, that they're seeing out in the, out in the environment. So there's such approaches like uh, plasma typing, phage typing, or serotyping, which is sort of based around uh, susceptibility or like morphological uh, changes, or there are other approaches which are based around genotyping. So such things like pulsefield gel electrophoresis or MILVA, or which is looking at microsatellites, or uh, MLST, which is looking at multiple housekeeping genes across the genome. Yeah, so I find this a bit odd because um, I come from the NGS era, like I'm an NGS boy. I only came to genomics in 2011. So all of this is like really obscure to me. Um, I've never done any of this. I've, I'm a computer scientist, so I haven't learned it in university. But uh, it's really fascinating because it still lives on. You know, these are classic techniques which have uh, stood the test of time. Yeah, so a number of these sort of tests, like for instance, serotyping, at least for salmonella, is still the, is a gold standard for reporting and things like MILVA, I think they use internally within the ECDC for reporting. PFG, which I think is in, still in use as well. Um, they're all very, the idea of these with these methods for a few of them is they're supposed to be very quick or very reliable methods of just gener- of just defining what's in what sample you've got so you can tell someone else but at a very high level yeah but at a very high level and a lot of these methods don't strictly uh, correspond to what you would see if you were looking at the whole genome since they're based on the idea that you're looking at phage typing which is you're infecting with different phages and seeing how the cells react to it has really not doesn't strictly have anything to do with the overall phylogeny of, of, a, of a genome but it, I suppose it does allow you to rule some things in and out of an outbreak. You know, if you've got a hospital with two different types circulating, then you can, you know, have a rough idea. Okay, it's it's not one big outbreak, it's two or three. Exactly. And and before you only really had Sanger sequencing as a, as a method. So this was good enough. Still good. Yeah, it's still good enough in, in um even today to use for that for just that sort of simple applications i suppose it's uh, one step above just going to your doctor and you know you cough and he's like oh well you know this is probably you know staph aureus you're thinking how on earth has he come to that conclusion uh, just by one cough or some vague symptoms without actually doing a proper diagnostic test well, i'd say these tests are these tests are some of these tests are quite robust it's sort of interesting with uh, some of some of the methods like again with pfg it 
will give you fairly high discriminant power because it's taking all of the DNA that's in a chromosome and doing the restriction digest on it. And that banding pattern is sort of, a, it's a pan-genomic measure uh, of, of the genome. And that can be quite, uh, and that's like good high fidelity uh, data that, that's, that you can use. And you can share, and you can share the, the banding patterns that you've generated are consistent, the protocol's consistent. So you can show that to your friend and that, that can make sense. And how does, uh, like I've seen trees built with PFGE, how do they compare to when you do whole genome sequencing? Yeah, if we're talking about data, if we're talking about genomes or strains that are very closely related, and you're trying to say, uh, if it's more or less identical, you, uh, Leah, maybe you can comment on how comparable the PFG is to say like, a clonal complex or a serotype or, or some other normal measure? Yeah, those are good questions. So PFGE um, is really tough to link back to WGS. I know, I don't want to scoop anybody, but I just know that there is some research right now trying to compare PFGE back to WGS. Unfortunately, it's not like a one-to-one -one because PFGE cuts in certain spots in the genome, but then that's not at a, at a defined restriction site but that's not a hard and fast rule because um, because certain things like methylation might block the restriction enzyme. And so, um, so you can't just predict the bands actually from a complete genome. Um, that said, uh, another question you had was how do we make trees out of PFG? And um, it's actually very simplistic, uh, usually, the restriction enzymes are picked so that you see about 15, dif 15 different bands on the gel per genome. And it's basically a distance matrix between different genomes where you have a distance of either zero to 15 bands. And so that distance matrix can be turned into a tree. A lot of times that tree corresponds with what the WGS tree would be, but then other times it would not. For example, Salmonella newport can probably be turned in, which which has basically certain PFG types, would actually turn into about three different, I think, three different WGS clades. Um, and you can, you can go from there. Uh, PFG can be blown apart in PF in WGS clades or they can be or different PFG profiles can be collapsed into one uh, WGS type. It's kind of interesting. Sorry, there's um, a few publications I can think of that discuss uh, some of the differences between PFG and old and whole genome sequencing can be because of different say phage that have infected a strain and then that that adds different, you know, uh, genomic content, which then alters the PFG banding pattern, and that might accidentally, that might accidentally lead you to think that it's more closely related to one other strain than you would to the to the one that it actually supposed that it's supposed to be. This this would be like as if you just say took every single SNP or took every single gene and considered that as part of your uh, tree, and it'll give you like a funny result. You can get the same sort of problem with PFG. So I know that in the U.S., um, with especially with PulseNet in the early '90s, um, they started using PFGE. Were they doing things like Milva in Europe? So from what I remember reading, 
and I might be wrong, but I think uh, MILVA is the standard uh, reporting method between different nations within the ECDC. Okay. So they would flag as soon as that, if someone's like, oh, we're seeing the same MILVA type several times, they would send a broadcast out that this is, this is what's going on. This is what they're seeing. And they'd ask, is anyone else seeing the same thing? Okay. And, that, and I think in, in the literature, you'll see that, yes, they select, they actually select uh, based on MILVA, and then that is used to inform what they will then go and look in deeper with, with like, say, whole genome sequencing. Yeah, you know what? We um, actually use PFGE, and then uh, as a secondary analysis, use MILVA when we were selecting which whole genome sequences to use for the Haiti cholera project. Um, when we were trying to use genomes early on, 2011-2013, to, um, to look at that outbreak. Um, and and it's, a, it's sort of a chicken and egg problem. You have to know what the diversity is before you run WGS, at least back then when resources were tight. And so um, we actually um, sequenced a diversity of PFGE and MILVA types. But then this sort of brings us to the question of this is still, I mean, you, you were using it back in those days, but you're still like the standard today, more or less. And why, what is the stopping point between moving from this to whole genome approaches then? We're slowly moving forward on that. We, I think that we have officially flipped the switch now so that labs are supposed to be running whole genome sequencing. They aren't being stopped from running PFGE, but... Um, we are coordinating on WGS now, at least for um, at least for a few different organisms. Which organisms today? We started with Listeria in 2013, which we were expecting something like 1,600 um, isolates from various agencies per year. Um, but it was a bigger feat to go to Salmonella, which is in the tens of thousands. And so, um, and I believe that's the same over there with you guys. It was more difficult. Um, we had sort of a tipping point last year where we were getting more WGS than PFGE. And I think now we are getting um, basically majority or hopefully virtually all the um, WGS on Salmonella. And hopefully also on Escherichia, although I'm not totally up to date on that. And are those uh, all made publicly available through uh, the NCBI? Yeah, um, all of our labs um, are now submitting directly to NCBI. And so you can see those in the bio projects um, on ncbi.nlm.nih.gov slash pathogens. And you can see under contributors which bio projects um, people are contributing from. Sometimes just because of patient confidentiality, we are masking. Um, and so you can't really, like these are anonymized, so we can at least use it for surveillance, but you can't track it back, back to the patient. Um, and then through the collaboration between NCBI and um, ENA, uh, those genomes are being constantly um, synchronized between the, the two agencies. And so they are downloadable from each database. So what is the difference? Why do we even want to share or talk about surveillance for different microbes? That's a great question, Abiel. Um, we have, uh, we use these different profiling techniques um, for things, especially like linking outbreaks. Um, 
even back when we only had seven genome LST, these were being used to describe which organisms had the same sequence type and we could tell, we could incorporate that into an outbreak definition like this. For example, a, a fictitious outbreak might have all of sequence type 11 and must be found in this boarding school where everybody was sharing the same airspace. And so that might be a meningitis outbreak. So it was important to know at least the seven genome LST at that time, but it didn't have as good resolution. And obviously WGS does a whole lot better job. A lot of other things can be derived from these, from just using profiling. You can profile, for example, virulence genes and a subset of that might be or you might consider a subset of virulence genes to be antimicrobial resistance genes. And so those could be determined um, just from analyzing the DNA of the organism. I don't know, certain things like MLST, 7-gene MLST might help you define like what the, what the host niche is. For example, meningococcus sequence type 32 for the longest time, if you found that in the U.S., I know that that would be something that was almost definitely from the northwestern region of the U.S. Some of some of my PhD work that just stuck with me for years. Yeah, I think um, in terms of host niche, def definitely like geographic, different serotypes of E. coli are, def are particularly for enterohemorrhagic E. coli is found in different locations around the world with different sort of clinical prevalence. Same thing applies with phage typing for a lot of species. Uh, you can see for some cases, uh, certain STs or certain, any of these genotypic measures will put them into certain animals or certain environments as well. So that, that there were, you can find a lot of literature where people have just gone to with these typing methods and then tried to correlate it back to where they found it and in what context, uh, whether it was part of an outbreak or whether it wasn't. And... A lot of that still holds, I think. I think we should be fair, fair on it, even with whole genome sequencing coming and redefining everything. A lot of, a lot of the gems that come out of those, uh, of those old papers are still true or still make sense. Yeah, I guess they are gems because it's like you... I feel like now we're kind of like tied into WGS and we want to look at everything WGS and why are people looking at phage typing. And, but like when you, when you read these old papers, it's like... You read about the phage typing, and that really does help out. Actually, there was a... For plasma typing, do you guys know the story of the Rajneeshi? No. Tell us. There was an outbreak that was kept secret for years, actually, in northwestern United States. There was a city where there was an Indian cult called the Rajneeshi, and they wanted to basically give everyone food poisoning on the day of a, an election and take over the town. They would be running and they would take over the town. This was actually the first case of a bioterrorism attack in the U.S. They had cult members working in like 15 different restaurants or something, and they decided to poison the food on the same day. And what happened? I think that they basically didn't get the incubation time correct, and everyone got sick on the wrong day. And they still were voted out of office and they were still investigated later. So tying this back into the conversation, they actually figured out who caused the outbreak through plasmid typing. They found that the Rajneeshi ordered an ATCC strain that had a unique plasmid in it. 
and they compared the plasmid of the outbreak versus ATCC and who bought this strain. And they looked in the basement of, of basically this cult compound and found it incubating in there. But that's pretty clever, uh, the way they traced that back. So that was kept secret for years. And um, and I don't, I don't even know, like, I don't even know when it was made public. I'm sure we can look that up. My my um, co-PI when I was in grad school told me about it and I didn't quite believe him. And then I saw it on one of my favorite shows, Forensic Files. And um, somebody at CDC who I know very well um, was interviewed on there and he was describing it. So I know that that's public now and there's a whole Wikipedia article on it and everything. I think that that's all to say that plasma typing and, and phage typing, just like you were saying, Nabil, is is incredibly useful. Like we, we want to do everything WGS, but we have to understand that these classic methods really were very useful. And what about uh, things like Multitoff? Are you guys using that in the US? We are using it, but I don't want to comment too much on it myself because we, because I'm not involved in it too much and I don't know much about it. I do know that it's incredibly useful. There's an expensive machine, but when you look at each sample, it costs something like 10 to 50 cents per each sample to run it. It's incredibly useful too. Uh, in, in the UK, actually, something they use a lot is uh, antibiograms. So just what grows and what doesn't, just the antibiotic resistance profile. And they use that in hospitals just to track different outbreaks because they you know, will have different um, antibiotic resistance profiles and they can tell what's in and what's out. Which is, it's kind of a neat way of doing it. Although we're going back to Louis Pasteur days. Uh, how do you mean it goes back to Pasteur days with, with that? Well, essentially, if you're just growing up uh, some bacteria on a plate and then seeing which what grows, what doesn't grow, you know, that that's quite uh, old school. Yeah, okay. But it works, you know, it, it's very de- definitive, apart from intermediate. That's cool. Okay, so next in our notes... Um, we wanted to talk about kind of uh, the federation and, and data sharing in pre-genomics land. For example, how do we coordinate across institutions and internationally? And I, I feel like what I'm going to do, what I'm about to do is be very U.S. centric. And I hope that you guys step in and, and tell me what's what else is happening in the rest of the world, too. So I can say that... Um, PulseNet is a major way that we coordinate across institutions internationally, at least at least across laboratories. PulseNet basically started officially in 1996 based on an outbreak that I believe was in 1993 in the western region of the U.S. Um, there was a fast food chain that is named, but I won't name it here. There's no point in, in pointing fingers on this podcast. But there was an E. coli outbreak. There was basically um, hamburgers that had um, shigetakusen producing E. coli. They weren't being cooked all the way sometimes. And basically little kids were getting really bad E. coli. I think Oregon, Washington, California, I'm forgetting one more state. I believe maybe it was Nevada started coordinating and they created kind of the seed behind PulseNet and it, and over time it became more centralized in Atlanta at CDC. And so um, over time, more and more states came on board. Presently, there are more than 80 labs in the U.S. for PulseNet. And PulseNet itself has 
grown out of the U.S. to create an international consortium called PulseNet International. And so they do coordinate, they have historically coordinated with MILVA and PFGE as standard reporting systems. They've used uh, bionumerics kind of as the platform for coordinating these results. And at that time, PulseNet was one of the largest um, platforms and movements and whatever you want to call it for syndication. Well, I'd like to know, how, how does PulseNet fit into Genome Tracker? Uh, Genome Tracker is this really awesome initiative put forward by FDA. And it's a post-genomics initiative, whereas PulseNet, even its name gets its name from Pulse Gel Electrophoresis. It is a pre-genomics platform. So PulseNet was basically, is basically um, coordinating with PFGE patterns and is now coordinating with WGS workflows. Genome Tracker was FDA's initiative to get um, their, their local laboratories on board um, for sending them WGS and for analyzing it centrally and for uploading it to NCBI centrally. Uh, Genome Tracker has used NCBI as its platform. Genome Tracker has recently expanded to Galaxy Tracker, which is based off of Galaxy. Galaxy is awesome. That's what we're using here at uh, Quadrum. Okay, how do you guys use it? Uh, well, we use for everything. It's, uh, it is the way forward, I think. It's a great system that just works for if you want to build a bioinformatics workflow, you know, you point and click. And uh, it's very, very scalable. It works in a cloud or works in a local HPC cluster. And we're using it with a, a system called Irida, which is a Canadian, originally a Canadian system for infectious diseases. Nabil knows probably more about this than I do. Yeah, so Irida, um, we're using that mainly for the data management and launching some, sim some of the simpler standardized pipelines through, through that resource and the idea is that you'll have your data on Irida which you can then link into Galaxy and then do more advanced complicated workflows that you that a user generates themselves. So it gives a good flexibility of standard issue um, results that you can sort of the reliable results and then you might want to go and do your own bespoke thing to follow up from that. So. Between the two, you've got that you've got the flexibility to kind of go to either avenue. Are you guys making any like custom workflows that that could turn into something more centralized with you and your partners? Well, we're putting that up on GitHub at the moment. Um, that's that was what I was working on today. Yeah, so slowly, slowly, we'll have more of our pipelines like readily available, so people can uh, we can always point to that of this is how we do our analysis and then they can actually just download it and use it themselves within these within these frameworks. And also it's a great way for labs around the world to share validated workflows or published workflows. You know, there's nothing worse than reinventing the wheel. And I guess that's one way we can all collaborate and share our bioinformatics uh, knowledge. That's great. And so I don't know if, if your repo is private at this time or if you'd like to publicize it here. What where can people look at your code for this? I'll add it to the show notes. And I think that you guys were just at a Galaxy Tracker conference. Yeah, I'm just back from a, a Galaxy PI meeting. So Galaxy is a huge community, and 
it's the uh, the major players would be Penn State and Johns Hopkins and Freiburg University, and everyone uh, got together. I think there's about twenty five PIs in a room just discussing the future directions of Galaxy. You know, it's been around for a while, and uh, it's going from strength to strength. There's tens of thousands of people using it on a daily basis, so it's it's fairly well uh, established out there, and a lot of companies use it as well. So some of these fancy websites you go to would, for commercial companies actually are just running Galaxy underneath and open source tools. And you can get all the same functionality essentially just by going and downloading Galaxy or if you want to try it out, there's different uh, containers. That's cool. And so also tying it back to kind of kind of our, our wheelhouse um, for kind of... I would say kind of genomic epidemiology. Are there any like main tools that you guys looked at during your conference or that you look at now at Quadrum? Well, the system we're using is um, IRIDA. Uh, what is it? Integrated Rapid Infectious Disease something. Uh, and it, it's, it's basically built for genomic epidemiology from the point of view, you know, bacterial pathogens. And that's what we are using it for. But we're kind of extending it into the next generation, third generation, allowing it to support like Nanopore and PacBio and that kind of thing. So there's a lot of tools out there and you can drop stuff in and get working very, very fast. It's amazing. It's democratized the bioinformatics analysis of bacteria and anybody can jump in fairly quickly and start doing high quality research and outbreak investigation. That's cool. So do you think that Quadrum and, and several several other places are jumping on Irida? It's a Canadian project and um and I know that they have been trying to broadcast it out. Yeah they have they do have some uh they do have a slowly growing user base. So there are a couple of chaps around outside of Canada who have started to use it for some of their projects as well. Okay. We have it installed at CDC too, um, and I need to use it more, but it, it is an awesome project. I agree with you. You know, one more, you named all the universities. And I remember um, actually Emory University had James Taylor, but he moved away a, a few years ago to Johns Hopkins. Yeah, so he's one of the, the main guys uh, at the Galaxy conference as at, and he is at Johns Hopkins, and he's still leading the, the Galaxy project there, and it's going from strength to strength. Yeah, it's a huge loss for us in Atlanta. What can you do? Nothing. <laughs> but I do know the University of Georgia as well uses uh, Galaxy quite extensively as well. Oh, wow. Were they represented at the conference? Oh, absolutely. They were, yeah. That's great. University of Georgia is um, really excelling now in bioinformatics. It's always excelling, sorry. But it's going, it's going better in bioinformatics now. Well, you work there, don't you? Or you're an adjunct... I'm not at the main campus, or any campus at all, really, but I'm an adjunct associated with uh, a satellite camp campus, which, and that campus is associated with food safety. So the main campus is, I think, an hour east of Atlanta. The campus I'm associated with is an hour south. So a little call out to the Center for Food Safety at the University of Georgia. Well, this has been a great conversation so far, going into the history of typing and covering topics such as PFG, MLST, plasma typing, and PulseNet right up to the present day with Genome Tracker. Join us again 
where we will continue on this journey into the history of genotyping. Thank you all so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and like us on iTunes or Google Play. And if you don't like the podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute. Mm -hmm.